All right, let's jump in. We are concluding a series of messages, and we've been taking a look at the passages of Ecclesiastes, looking at big questions that drive us. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at some of the basic themes of the book. Now, right away, if you've been in Ecclesiastes, and hopefully you've read it at least once during this series, if you haven't, today's the day. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm going to read it today. Ready, set, go. There you go. If you're watching online, yell at somebody in your house right now. I don't even care if you're in the bathroom. You yell, I'm reading it today. Read it in the bathroom. That'd be a good place. But we want you to dig into the book of Ecclesiastes because as you read it, you understand it is so different from many of the other books of the Bible. And what strikes you right away is that one of the reasons it's so different is because it's written from the viewpoint of what I've called a practical secularist. Now, let me back up. I said this on week one. We've touched on these themes. But when we talk about practical secularism, what I mean is not so much that the writer doesn't believe in God. No, no, no. I'm not talking about atheism. Because he uses the word God a couple of times. For example, he talks about, notice the scripture that's coming up on the screen. He talks about the meaningless life that God has given us under the sun. So it's not that he doesn't believe in God. It's just to say that the writer is writing from a perspective that God isn't really involved in the answers to life's big questions. Everything that's under the sun. So having said that, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he's not really talking about the biblical God. He's not really talking about the judge of heaven and earth. He's not talking about the lover of our souls. He's just, see, God in this, in this book, it's such a fascinating book because God is this vague, ambiguous concept. Now, guys, listen. If you were the average person living in America today, that's exactly what they're like. You ask a person today, do you believe in God? And most people have kind of that AA view of God. He's a higher power. There actually are very few staunch atheists. I have met many, many people that have wanted to connect with me, that are atheists, they've wanted to talk, but when I really get to know them, they're not really atheists. They may even say they choose atheism. They may say, I don't believe in God, but the average person who doesn't claim Christianity will admit, well, there may be some kind of supreme being out there, we don't know, but we don't think that that supreme being, you can't know that God. You can't... You can't understand that God. You can't really know the will of God. And so essentially, what, is, what does a person like that say? They say, well, this life is all there is. This is all I know. We don't really know why we're here. We just know after a while you're dead, that's it. And so, you know, in this life, make the best of it. Do what you want. Have fun. Now, Listen, the reason I love Ecclesiastes, and I said this in the first week, is because what makes Ecclesiastes so unusual and so helpful, and why it eventually brings you back to God, is because it's not afraid to say things like that. It's not afraid to ask big questions or hard questions. That's why I love it. It's frankly like we're trying to be as a church. We're not afraid of any question either. We're, we can easily say, huh, I don't know. Let's go figure that out together. And that's why I love it. And by the way, Ecclesiastes doesn't just doubt belief. Ecclesiastes is so democratic, it actually doubts unbelief. Something almost nobody does. And I love that. Everybody doubts belief. But when do people doubt their doubts? Wouldn't it be fair to not only doubt your belief, but also to doubt your doubts? 
Well, Ecclesiastes does both. And it asks some hard questions. So we've been trying to answer those questions. So if you've not listened to all the messages, we've talked about questions of achievement and what does, what does a life fulfilled really look like. We've talked about questions of identity. And in today's culture, question of identity is a big one because people have all sorts of ideas about what frames who they are as a human being or a human person. So it's good that the Bible speaks to those things. Then we talked about questions of pleasure and what's going to ultimately satisfy my life. Now today, I want to talk to you about what probably is one of the tougher questions. Probably one of the questions that leads people to more atheism or saying that they're atheists than any other. And this is, how do you deal with the injustice of life or the injustice of the world? Now, guys, this is an important topic, and I want you to pay attention, because this issue right here is the main problem people have with God. It is the main problem that people have with faith and with everything. How do you deal with what seems unjust, the suffering and the evil that happens? Now, here's what Solomon does. So good. And I can't cover it all, but I'm going to tell you in advance, he does two things in this book. And I'm going to tell you what they are up front. You don't have to write anything down yet, but let me just tell you. He indicates to us in this book that there are three things we shouldn't do. He almost says, it's like, it's like he indicates, don't do X, don't do Y, don't do Z. Now, I'm going to call those things what, how not to respond to injustice, but then he gives us two clues to some answers about how God tells us, how he responds, and how we should respond. So, are you ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, if you're online, type into the chat, I'm ready, are you, okay? Just, just type that in there. All right, here we go. Three things, three things you ought not to do. And then as believers, what should we do? How do we respond? Let's start with verses 11 and 12. Let's jump back. Pastor Kyle read this. Here we go. Take a look at this scripture that's coming up here. He says this. Let's read it together. Everybody with me? The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. Now, there was a writer that I was reading in preparation for this, and I'm just reading what he had to say, and what he did was he decided one night he was going to take down the first couple of sentences from every, every news story on TV that night. Here's what he got. There was trouble in the Middle East again today, Three terrorists commandeered a school bus and set off explosives that killed both themselves and all the children. A major storm hit Bangladesh. Thousands were drowned. Tens of thousands are homeless. A four-car pileup on Route 261 resulted in five deaths. In New York, a five-year-old girl was in her mother's lap and was killed by a stray bullet. One night on the news. Now, here's, here's another one, and this one was a little more of a research thing on my part, but every year, nearly 11 million children die before reaching their fifth birthday. Did you know that? By the way, they all die. The ones I'm talking about die from preventable causes. They're not the accidents. That is approximately 30,000 children per day. What do they die of? They die of complacency. They die of selfishness or they die of ignorance. People with the power to treat them simply fail to do it. Of course, I just asked you to pray about India. Let's take a look at two days ago, the latest COVID record. As of right now in our world, there's three, 
8.17 million deaths from just COVID. What is that saying? What is the Ecclesiastes writer trying to say? Here's what he's saying. He's saying it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter whether you're good. It doesn't matter whether you're bad. Horrible things happen constantly. They happen randomly. And they happen universally. And by the way, they can happen to anybody. Suddenly, beautiful little children are blown up. Suddenly this. Suddenly that. You can't avoid it is what he's saying. It's the random misery and the cruelty of the world. It's called the injustice of life. Now, you didn't know you were going to come today and get such an encouraging message, did you? What is he saying? Don't, don't let this pass you by. Look at what he says. No matter where you are, outdoors, take a look at this scripture. Indoor, wherever you are, look at this. It says, as it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. There's no difference. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the what? Come on, the in that happens under the sun. What's it saying? It's saying, look, guys, listen. You might be swift, but you may lose. You might be brilliant, but you may not succeed. In fact, you look down at verse 5, and guys, if this isn't bad enough, he goes on. He says something even worse. It's staggering. Take a look at this next one. He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is what? Forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since what? vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, it's not just injustice in this life. He's saying there's an ultimate injustice. It'd be bad enough if, well, I'm going to live this life. It's going to be hard, but, but that's okay because after it's going to be glory. No, no, that's not what he says. He says, after this life of injustice, you're going to go into cosmic nothingness and forgetfulness. It's the worst injustice of them all. No matter what you do in this life, whether you live a life of love or you live a life of hate and cruelty, listen, whether you're the terrorist or you're the child, the swift or the strong, everything you do is the same. Everything will vanish. Everything will be gone. And do you know what's even worse than that? You'd say, I haven't even hit the, hit the worst part yet. Of this injustice. What's even worse than that is that the writer is saying even the memory of what you do, even the effect of what you do will be forgotten. Listen, listen, there's a lot of people watching here right now. You may do tremendous things in your life. You may build the pyramids and you might be remembered a little longer than the rest of us, but eventually we're going to forget you too. By the way, can you name for me who built those pyramids? No, of course you can't. And everything dies. And everything rots. And the sun will rot. In other words, there's a cosmic injustice or a cosmic forgottenness that lies in everything. Now, how are human beings supposed to respond to that big question? What do we do with that? Well, there are some ways that people typically respond to injustice. So let me talk to you about those very briefly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clip through them fast because I want to hurry us along here. But just, just, this is really interesting. When we face injustice, first he says some things we do, but we ought not to do. Write this down. Here's the first thing he says. You can choose, number one, to tune it out. Meaning you can look at injustice and you can pretend or act like 
You can even choose to believe it's not that big of a deal. You can say, oh, pastor, you're just being gloomy. Man, I want to get out of here. I don't know he's going to talk about such depressing things. You may say, even the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's, he, he's depressing. Better that we not think about that. You're just going to be depressed all the time. So what are you doing? You're diminishing it. By the way, people do that in America especially. We do that all the time. You see something, and it's shocking, but you just let it go. You choose not to worry about it. You go on with your life. Let me give you an example. What do you typically do with the evening, do, evening news? Have you been there? You know, another bomb goes off. There's another shooting. Another person is mistreated. Somebody else is whatever it is. And what do we say? We look at the news, and we go, oh, my goodness. Okay, dinner's on the table. That's what we do. And we turn off the news. And then we begin to tune it out. Even cosmic injustice, we tune it out. People say, hey, look, if that's true, if there is, if there is forgetfulness, if it's all unjust, you go into eternity, then, man, better not to worry about it. Just chill out. What do people say? Even preachers say, just live your best life now. Oh, hey, there's a good life to live now. There's mountains. I just got back from the mountains with some friends. I see one of them over there. I love you, brother. Um, you know, you, you, you got, there's mountains. There's beautiful things to do. There's lakes. There's the beach. There's the theater. There's sex. There's incredible restaurants. There's wonderful clothes. Hey, just go enjoy your life. What's he say? Come on, guys. Let's go back to it. Remember what he said? Verse 7, can you throw this up here for everybody? He says, go eat your food with what? Come on. Gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Always be clothed in what? What's he saying? He's saying, just look great. Just feel marvelous all the days of this meaningless life. Now, that is one way that you can choose to deal with it. And people deal with injustice that way all the time. They put their head in the sand. Or here's another way. Write this down. You can despair it. You can despair it. And what I mean by that is that you, you just go into despair. The world is falling apart, and you go into depression, and you just lose your mind. By the way, this last year, I have seen, even in our uh, community, I have seen uh, people respond in both these ways. Some people, they're tuning out the whole COVID thing. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's no problem. People are making a whole lot of do about nothing. I mean, you've got that side of the group, and then you've got another side of the group that are depressed and are sad and are hanging on for dear life. I mean, honestly, you see these extremes when trouble comes, when people suffer, and you go into despair. Again, let's just go back to Ecclesiastes. It's such a rich book. What does it say? It says, this is the evil and how much? Everything that happens under the sun, there's nothing above the sun. Practical secularists, this is just this life, that's all there is. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Now, so those are two things you can do. You can tune it out or you can despair it or write this down. This is something we've seen in the last year too. You can just choose to live for yourself. And by the way, ultimately, this is really what the writer of Ecclesiastes does. This is what Solomon does. We've been looking at this week after week. He goes after achievement. He goes after pleasure. He begins to define himself and his identity on his own terms. And you can live on your own terms. You can live your way. You can live for your happiness. 
And in all these things, if you read on, though, what you see is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell the human person. Women, he's trying to tell you. Men, he's trying to tell you. He's saying to you, don't you dare do any of these things. He forces you to look at the question. He says, don't tune it out. What kind of a human being does it make you if you tune out the injustice of other people's suffering? How could we do that? You start doing that, you start to lose your humanity. Don't do that. He also says, don't, so don't diminish it, but don't despair it. Don't, God's in control. And certainly don't become selfish where life's just all about you. And guys, I gotta tell you something. <laughs> it's so exciting for me. You can tell I'm excited to share this book with you because what I love about this book is that he refuses to let you get out from under the question. I'm telling you, that's why I love saying we're not afraid of any question around here. Because the Bible's not. God's not. It's okay if we don't know all the answers. Let's ask the question on this topic of injustice. But he says, here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't ignore it. You've got to look at it. And especially the biggest one, the question of ultimate injustice. The radical and cosmic nothingness and forgottenness. He refuses to let you tune it out. So, how does God say to deal with it? How does the Bible deal with this issue then of injustice? Now, I'm gonna tell you something. I was working, I worked, uh, we did a retreat this weekend. I worked till about midnight last night on this message. I was so tired and I was honestly feeling a little stressed and I'm in my living room and my wife says, honey, just go to bed. You've taught on this a million times. Why don't you just go wing it? And I go, yeah, honey, I just, see my personality doesn't work that way. And I have done a lot of messages on pain and suffering, but my, I, you know, my personality doesn't work that way. No, 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 I've got I've to keep going. You know? So I keep going, and it's true. I have studied this topic a lot. I've read more books than I can remember. But here's what I've found out, it seems like, over the years. I have found out that the Bible's answer almost usually boils down to two answers. And what I'm going to call them for you today is a head answer and a heart answer. Does that sound good? And I'm going to be honest up front right now, if you have this question of suffering and evil and injustice, this is my honest answer. Neither the head answer nor the hot answer is fully satisfying. It's not. But you put those two answers together and you do get something pretty remarkable. And I want you to be patient because the Ecclesiastes writer, again, different than any other book, he, he doesn't tell you outright what the answer is. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, you know what I'm talking about. Ecclesiastes is not a lecture. What does he do? He goads you. He role plays. He pushes you with questions, but he does give us clues. Now, one more thing. This is all kind of a preface. One more thing. I want to say to you that if you're here right now and you are suffering, if you're watching online or outdoors and you are suffering, the head answer is not going to be satisfying and you might grow impatient with me right now. But I'm going to tell you it is interesting. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you to put up with it because we need both. We need the head answer and we need the hard answer. Does that sound good? Amen. All right. So what's the answer for the head? First of all, write that down. The Bible does give us a head answer, an intellectual answer. And he gets to it, by the way, in verses 3 and 4. And this is an incredible thing because he says something really terrible about dogs. Go ahead and throw that scripture up on the screen for me. Who, who here has a dog? Raise your hand. Online, if you have a dog, just type, I have a dog. We'd like to know that. You know, when people think of dogs, you know, uh, they think of beagles. 
and they think of collies or they think of labradoodles or golden doodles or all those kind of cute dogs. But when ancient people thought of dogs, they didn't think like that. To ancient people, dogs were the lowest form of animal. Did you know that? Why is that? Because dogs were the scavengers. Dogs were wild. Dogs lived on garbage. Dogs ate cadavers. However, to ancient people, the lion was the most noble of beasts. And so let's just look at verse 4. He says in response to everything we've said, he says, even a live what? Dog is better off than a, than a dead lion. What's he saying? He's saying, look, based on things as they are in this life, it would actually be better for you to be a liar, a murderer, a scavenger. It would be better for you to eat corpses and be unjust, do whatever you want. Better for you to be a Hitler than to be a noble person that dies. Better for you to be a Hitler and live, even if you treat people badly, than to be a noble lion. Better to save your own skin. And by the way, I want to propose to you this fact. If this life is all there is, if there is nothing here beyond the sun, then he's absolutely right. You better just live for yourself. Because if this is all there is, if there's no difference between the child and the terrorist, just save your own skin. Better to be a liar, better to be a murderer, better to be a thief than be a noble person who ends up dying for it. Why? Because either way you go, what does it say? Go to this next scripture. Either way you go, their love, their hate, and their jealousy, all of them, it's long since what? Vanished. Vanished. What's he saying? Now guys, you've got to get what I'm saying here. Because what I'm telling you, if you send your kids or you come from a college or a university, this is philosophy 101. We have some people that major in philosophy, and I'm telling you, this is what is being taught in, uh, philosophically on campuses. They're saying, look, here's the idea. If this life is all there is, if we just accidentally evolved out of the collocation of accidental forces, if we're nothing more than mo mo moist robots that by chance are walking around, if that's true, then when you die, you rot. Now, if that's true, if when you die, you rot, I'm telling you today, all moral distinctions are pointless. There's no such thing as right and wrong if that's true. You say, well, why? You may want there to be right and wrong. You may feel like, well, I feel like there should be right and wrong. But what I'm saying to you is there's no objective reason for right and wrong if that's true. You know why? Because if what I said is true, then goodness, all goodness, all moral goodness, do you understand let me put it this way. All moral goodness is always relative to your purpose. If I can quote or pull an illustration from an old philosopher, he said it this way. He said, what if somebody gave you a watch? How many of you would like to receive a watch? Come on. Anybody want to receive a watch? All right. Let's say that you got a watch, but here's the trick. You, you've never seen a watch before in your life. It's the first time you've ever seen a watch. Now, somebody asks you then, you've never seen one before, they give it to you, somebody asks you, is that good? What are you going to say? If you've never seen one before, I'll tell you what you're going to say. You're going to say, oh, I don't know. You're going to say, what's it for? Is it for hammering a nail? Because I'm going to tell you, if the watch is for hammering a nail, that's not good. Because a watch is going to stink at hammering a nail. Am I right? Listen, here's what I'm saying. What, you have to know what it's for before you know what it's supposed to do. 
There is no such thing as abstract goodness. You have to know what it's for, whether it's good or bad. And if that's not defined, if God doesn't exist, that's a problem. Let me ask you a question. Come on, listen to me. What makes a good human being? Again, this is the head answer. But what makes a good human being? Would you say that what Hitler did was wrong, to use an obvious example? Sure you would, but what makes him wrong? If there's no morality eternally. You'd say, you'd say, well, we should just be good to people. And I would argue that Hitler thought he was being good for his people. You see, my point is this. I'm not saying that he was good. I'm simply saying if you get rid of God, there's no moral objectivity. It's all subjective. It's dog-eat-dog. Look, look, if we're accidents, there's no purpose. And I'm going to tell you this. If we're all just accidents then it's ridiculous for you to say that it's bad to hurt people because I'm just going to say to you, who says? The strong eat the weak. Dogs eat the dogs. Who are you to say? Do you see the problem? That, do you see what I'm saying? Solomon says, let's look at what he says. He says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are what? Meaningless. Meaningless. Because where there's no purpose, there's no morality. Look, guys, guys, listen. You may be here and you're a secular person. You have a secular mindset. You may be watching this. You're a secular person. You have a secular mindset. But this is at the heart of being a secular person. At the heart of unbelief. If a person says, I don't really believe in a God because of the injustice I see, I'm going to say, I hear you, but here's the contradiction. It's the head answer. Write this down. This is the contradiction. If there's no God, then there is no basis for you being outraged at injustice. But if there is a God, then it's to him you have to look for who you're supposed to be. Now, I really wish I could spend, you know, a whole series on this, and it would be worth it, and it's important, but I don't have time, so I'm just going to say it to you this way, okay? Okay? We'll come back to this in, fu in the future. I, mean, I am just going say to say it this way. If there is a God, I'm going to admit to you right now, pastor of a church, I believe in Jesus Christ. I love God's word. I believe it's the inspired word of God with, uh, word of God with authority. But I'm going to tell you right now, if there is a God, I admit that evil and injustice is a problem. Yes, it is a big problem. Because, it's a problem because I have to wonder and you have to wonder, why does God allow it? What are the reasons? That's a problem. I admit it. I'm not going to just tune it out. But, but, if I'm an unbeliever, it's an even bigger problem. Do you know why? Because if I'm an unbeliever, I have to explain what makes it unjust what makes it evil? And that's a bigger problem. So yeah, I have to figure out why God allows what he does. But if I'm an unbeliever, I have to even understand why I think it's wrong. Let me say this again. If there is no God, then there's no basis for being outraged at injustice. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Write this down. It means that if evil then is a problem for you, there must be a God. Amen. There must be. Why? Because it's only that worldview that gives you a basis for the outrage you feel. Now, that's a big question. Can you see why I called that the head answer, by the way? <laughs> but Ecclesiastes also gives you a heart answer, and this is, this is what I love the most. So write that down. The Bible gives you a heart answer, a heart answer. 
And it's a more personal answer. And again, there are clues for it in the last bit of text. By the way, Kyle read this, and I'm listening to him read this, and it is such a weird story. Probably when you're hearing him read it, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Look what it says. It says, verse 13, he says, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. Now, impressed means it amazed me. It means that it confounded me. It means the writer's saying it mystified me. You know why? You're going to love this. In this little story, he saw a kind of wisdom beyond any of the wisdom he ever knew. And he saw three things about this wisdom that he'd never seen before. And I want for you to write these down because, first of all, we're going to go to the text. But what he says is, write this down. He says, first I saw what I'd call a saving wisdom, a saving wisdom. Just write that down, that God reveals a saving wisdom. Because I want to read this story with you about this saving wisdom. In fact, let's go back and look at the story. Again, I said it was a weird story. Here we go. He says, there was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it. Now, the city is going to be victimized, right? The city is going to suffer injustice because a power is coming against the small little people. So they surrounded it, and they built huge siege works against it. But it says, notice, now there lived in that city a poor man, but wise. And he saved the city by his what? Wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. But the poor man's wisdom is what? Despised. Now, why is it a saving wisdom? I said it was. It's a saving wisdom, again, because the little city, there's few people, but this great king with huge siege work is coming against it. It's absolutely overwhelming. The city is doomed. There's no way out. The people are done for. And by the way, Solomon doesn't tell us exactly how he did it, but here's what we know. There was a wisdom from God that was absolutely so incredible that this one man, this poor man through what he did, was able to save a city, one man. Now, here's the takeaway. There is a very special wisdom that comes from God that is not like man's wisdom. It doesn't conform to the principles of this world. It doesn't react to injustice in the flesh or emotion. In other words, it doesn't repay evil with evil, but it saves. How? Well, it's incredible. What, what is it about the saving wisdom? Well, you'll understand why it's a saving wisdom when you understand the next part about it. I said three things. You understand that it's a saving wisdom because it's also a serving wisdom. Write that down. It's a serving wisdom. In the Bible, God reveals a serving wisdom. Now, because you got to see this, one thing that's so weird, one thing when you look at this that is so absolutely unusual is that you have this wise man in the story, and what does it say about his uh, economic status? What is, it? what is he? Poor. He's poor. But what's fascinating is... The writer of Ecclesiastes, do we all know who that was? Solomon. Was Solomon poor or rich? He was rich. And Solomon is the true wise man. Hmm. In fact, Solomon was given supernatural wisdom. The Bible says he asked God and God gave it to him, supernatural wisdom. But the wise man, the true wise man, was a rich man. In fact, he was a king. So what is this rich man saying? The wise man says, Solomon says, revealing in the story, he says, look, when it's all said and done, I'm rich, but when it's all said and done, the person with supernaturally saving wisdom says, salvation doesn't come through the wealth. 
And deliverance doesn't come through power. And deliverance doesn't come through grabs for power. There's a lot of talk, by the way, in today's world in America about injustice and what to do about that. The wise man says it doesn't come by going after grabs of power. And it doesn't come after attempting to dominate others. No, no, no. He's saying there is a humble wisdom that a poor servant could change the world and save the city. That a man used his wisdom to be a servant toward his enemy. There's a humility there that I pray we have, guys. And then finally... And lastly, and most astounding of all this wisdom, it's not just a saving wisdom, and it's not just a serving wisdom, but the Bible, the writer says, write this down, it's kind of shocking, the writer says it's a despised wisdom. It's despised. Watch this. Watch this. Why is it despised? Because the world can't understand it. If you're treated with injustice, why would you go after saving people that treat you that way? Why would you go after serving? The world doesn't get that. But it says about the man, now why do I say he was despised? Well, because look at the text. Could you pull that up there for me, just that next verse? Look at what it says here. It says, but nobody remembered that poor man. He was forgotten. But he wasn't just forgotten, because look what it says right here. It says, but... The poor man's wisdom is despised. You understand, I'm not talking about just forgetting somebody. I'm talking about deliberately forgetting somebody. I'm talking about the people turned on him. They hated him. Are you following what's going on here? Have you caught where I'm going? Let me clarify There is a saving wisdom. There is a serving wisdom that is manifest in a person, a poor person, that opposes injustice, that saves and serves, that was rejected and is forgotten. Now let me ask, who does that sound like to you? Who came serving? Who comes saving? He who was made poor and despised and forgotten, do you see? The words of Ecclesiastes ring like a prophecy to the world. How so? It affects you. It's not just about what Jesus did. Why? Because look at what Paul writes in the New Covenant or the New Testament. He says, but we preach, let's read this together. Here we go. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. A saving wisdom. A serving wisdom. A despised wisdom that will be rejected But you see, Jesus is the answer to all injustice. Reflecting Jesus and acting like Jesus in every circumstance is what we do when we respond to injustice. But you understand, if you act this way like Jesus, you may experience ultimate forgottenness because people don't like that. But Jesus really is the answer. In fact, I would say it this way. He is the heart of the answer. You know, I was reminded of a story. I'm close to being done. 
But I was reminded of a story that I read years ago. It was an imaginative piece named The Long Silence. Let me read it to you. It's about the day of judgment that we're all going to face. It says, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank, shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly. Not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. They said, God, can you judge us? How can God judge us? How can God know about suffering and injustice? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with swollen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he had permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where there was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that human beings had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So you know what they did. Each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because of who had suffered the most. Who did they send? They sent a Jew. They sent a black man, black woman. They sent a person from Hiroshima. They sent a horribly deformed arthritic child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other, and at last, they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to judge, he must endure what they have endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a human being and let him be born a Jew and let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let his work be so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges to be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to die terribly alone and then let God die. Let God die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throngs of people assembled. And when he had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly they all knew that God had already served his sentence. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus, the reason he's the heart of the answer is because he actually entered into the injustice that we experience. What is the hard answer? It's simply this. Write this down. Jesus Christ meets us in our pain and in our injustice. And he does it, number one, to show you that he understands it. But he does it, number two, because he wants to show you that he will ultimately satisfy it. In fact, just keep writing because that's the second point here, that Jesus Christ ultimately satisfies injustice. Why? Because on the cross, I'm going to tell you something today. 
Jesus is different than me. See, Jesus on the cross, he didn't give us a philosophical argument when he was on the cross, which is, you know, the wisdom of God. He didn't say like I did, hey, let me explain to you why unbelief has a bigger problem than belief. No, Jesus didn't do that. No, when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? Well, it's recorded for us. What does it say? Go to this scripture here for just a second. It says it was about three in the afternoon and Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani. That is my God, my God. What does it say? Why have you forsaken me? Now, do you see what's happening right there in that moment? What is Jesus experiencing? Jesus is experiencing before God, God turned his back on him. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate forgottenness. The ultimate injustice. The ultimate cosmic nothingness comes upon Jesus himself. God is pouring it out on him, turning his back on his son, giving him what we deserve, giving to him what actually makes our lives meaningless. What happened? It says that Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that we could become right with God. And do you know what he says to you today? you got to see this. Could we go to Isaiah 49 real quick? This is my favorite passage, one of my favorite passages of the whole Bible. I've referred to it a lot. God is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may even forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. What does that mean? It means that I have put your name in places my hands, where I see them no matter what I do, no matter I'm writing, I'm picking things up, I'm shaking somebody's hand, everywhere my hands go, I see you. And then he says, your walls are ever before me. What does that mean? Listen to me, listen. What was going on with the walls of Israel? Because of the injustice, they were broken. Torn down, ripped apart. Israel is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. And what God's saying is, I see your injustice. Your walls are ever before me. I see it. But look what he says. He says, don't worry because your sons hasten back and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around you. All your sons gather and come before you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. God says, I make a promise to you that for every injustice you face, I will make it up. I will bring ultimate and eternal justice in spite of the pain. And those people that have wronged you and you and all of us and how we respond, don't worry because there is a day of reckoning coming. God says it because look what it says. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in body. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. What do we do? We try and persuade men. What we are is plain to God. What you are is plain to God. God sees you. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we don't live worldly. We don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though once we did, 
fact, once we regarded Jesus this way, we treated people badly. But no, Jesus has done something new. See, now we live differently. See, because therefore, let's read it together. Here we go, everybody. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All of it, every bit of it is from God, he says. Isn't that amazing? Who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of what? Come on. How should you respond to injustice? What ministry is yours? The ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he committed to us a message of what again? Reconciliation. We are, come on, read it with me, with gusto, let's do it. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, come on everybody, be reconciled to God.